I wonder if any of you speak Korean. I don't. In my high school years, in the 1980s, we had three choices. You could study Spanish, you could study French, you could study German. I chose German. I don't know why. Don't remember anything. You may have heard the joke, what, what do you call a person who can speak three languages? Trilingual. Do you call a person who can speak two languages? Bilingual. What do you call a person who can speak one language? American. <laughs> Sad, but it's true. Uh, I should have learned Korean. The part of Virginia I grew up in had many immigrants from Korea. A third of my high school was Korean. Uh, I studied Korean martial arts all through my teenage years. And when I went to the mission field, I was surrounded by Korean missionaries. And yet, in spite of all of that, other than Anyang Haseo, Nanam Mark, Imnida, hello, my name is Mark, I've got nothing. And that was a painful reality to me as I took a trip to Korea uh, in the mid-2000s. I'd been invited to come and speak on college campuses for Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, my guide was an older gentleman who didn't speak any English. Uh, he would drive me several hours from city to city, and we basically had hand gestures the entire way. I never knew where we were going. I never knew when we would get there. Uh, and once, through hand gestures, I thought he was telling me, and we got there, I would give a message for five minutes. He kept saying five minutes, or that's what I thought he was saying. When I arrived at the spot, and my translator came over to me, he said, we are very eager for your one-hour sermon. And when you try to stretch five minutes of preparation into one hour, it's painful for you and it's painful for the people. But that was my experience. The most vivid memory for me on that trip was a church that we visited in Seoul. It was a two-hour church service. The people sang fervently. The place was packed. And yet from the beginning of the service to the end, I understood one word. It, and it wasn't Jesus. I, I couldn't even pick that out for some reason. It was the word amen, <laughs> which is something of a dilemma because when you don't understand, I mean, amen means I agree. So do you say amen with the people when you have no idea what has been said? Now, you may have had a, a familiar experience to that. If you've traveled in foreign countries, the inability to communicate it renders relationship difficult, if not impossible. It creates a sense of distance, a barrier between you and other people. And, and you acutely feel in that moment the inability to do what God created us to do. When God created the first man and the first woman, he created them for relationship. He created them to communicate so that they could help each other. That's what we're supposed to do as human beings. Now, I know so often we don't do that. We don't use words the way we are supposed to, but that's the original intent. And friends, the church, even imperfectly, is supposed to be a place where we try to return to that great goal, to be a benefit to each other through communication. Uh, that's what we've been trying to think about in these first weeks of 2023 at GBC. What does it mean to build up 
Christ's body, the church. Our text this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You may want to make your way there in your copy of God's Word or turn in your pew Bible to page 902. Uh, This chapter is the longest sustained teaching in the New Testament about the gathered church. It's about what you and I should be doing here this morning. Why is it that we are gathered here? I mean, if God is everywhere and he can be worshipped anywhere, why do we have to do it this way? For that matter, why didn't we get some more sleep this morning? Why are we not on the golf course or the soccer pitch? Why are we not at a coffee shop with a good book? What is it that God intends for us to be doing this morning? Our text tells us why we gather. Our big idea this morning, you may want to write this down, love should compel us to use our gifts to help others know God better. Love should compel us to use our gifts to help others know God better. It's my prayer that our study would motivate us towards that great goal of helping others to know God better. We'll think about that in three points this morning. Number one, love compels us to use our gifts. Love compels us to use our gifts. Number two, help believers know God better. Help believers know God better. And then third and finally, we'll consider help unbelievers know God help unbelievers know God. Let's dive right in. Number one, love compels us to use our gifts. We're looking at 1 Corinthians 14. Let me read verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, our text follows on that great love chapter that we considered last week. Uh, Paul commands us not just to define love, not just to think about love, not just to meditate on it, but to get busy doing it. He uses the word pursue here. Pursue love. And the next phrase says, and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Now, I think in context, that and should be a by. He's saying pursue love by pursuing spiritual gifts, by earnestly desiring them. The balance of this chapter is going to be about how the Spirit of God can empower you and I to do each other spiritual good. Spiritual gifts are the way that God empowers, enables, uses Christians to help the whole church. Now, let's do a brief refresher on spiritual gifts. It's a topic that Paul had started back in chapter 12. Uh, There, he told us four things about spiritual gifts. First, they're sovereignly given. They're sovereignly given. The word charisma, charis, means grace. You can translate it as gift if you want. A gift is gracious by definition. So there is something we don't have that God is giving to us. So back in chapter 12, verse 11, Paul says the Spirit apportions these gifts to each one as he wills. So these are not resume achievements. They're divine gifts. So first, they're sovereignly given. Second, every Christian has a spiritual gift. Every Christian does. 
Chapter 12, verse 6 says, God empowers them in everyone. Chapter 12, verse 11, to each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, Paul nowhere indicates that those who are gifted is kind of like an elite fraternity in the church. He, He pictures the gifts as freely distributed among all of God's people. You you may have more than one, but you have at least one. Third, spiritual gifts are of many different kinds. There are many different kinds of gifts. Uh, There are at least least three different lists of gifts in the New Testament. So in, in Romans 12, Paul lists prophesying, serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, leadership, and mercy. In 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 11, we have word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, healing, miraculous powers, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, speaking in tongues, and interpretation of tongues. That's the longest list. And then down in chapter 12, verse 28, he he lists a couple more. Healings, helps, governing, and then again he mentions tongues. So these three lists are different, and they're not presented as set offices in the church, like elders and deacons. There, there are nowhere uh, uh, qualifications for having each of these gifts. They're presented to us as the kinds of things that God does in empowering the church. So I don't think we should see these lists of gifts as exhaustive, but rather suggestive, the kinds of things that God gives us. Fourth and finally, the spiritual gifts are discerned as they are used. Uh, It's noteworthy because there are no qualifications or full descriptions. uh, The question, how do I know what spiritual gift I have, is not answered in quite that way. Rather, the picture seems to be, as you get busy knowing the church, loving the church, trying to serve people in the church, that you're going to realize how you are gifted, and other people around you are going to realize how you are gifted. So this is why I'm not a fan of spiritual gift tests. It's okay if you've taken them before. It's just whenever I've taken a spiritual gift test, I'm kind of like, where are they getting this stuff? You know, the questions that's supposed to tell you which one you have. Uh, I don't think we're supposed to sit around and try to figure out the answer to that question. We're supposed to get busy serving. Maybe you've heard the phrase, you, you can't steer a car that's not moving. Now, that's, that's anachronistic, right? Because young people are like, what, what does that even mean, power steering? You can steer a car. Well, back in the day, some of you remember what it was like before power steering, right? You turn the wheel of the cars quite hard unless you're moving. I think that's the idea that should be in our minds. We get busy trying to meet the needs that are out there, signing up for the things that need doing, and then as we're moving, the Spirit works to gift us and to guide us. So four things about spiritual gifts. God gives them. We all have one. There are lots of different kinds, and they're discerned as they are used. Now, it's tempting to move on here, and plunge into the following discussion, Paul's argument, but we would be remiss if we didn't consider just how against the grain this command is. To to show up at a church thinking about loving other people 
and asking God to, to gift you so you can serve them. Is that how we walk into church on a Sunday morning? I mean, it's not the default setting of the human heart, right? If, if we're honest, we show up in the morning hoping to get something out of church. Minimally, we're hoping not to be bored. As the father of four teenagers, I can assure you that that is one thing in some people's minds this morning. Don't bore me. But we're hoping beyond that to, to be encouraged, maybe by someone else. Uh, we'd like the logistics to go well of getting to church and going from church. We'd like it if the temperature in the room is set at the right level. Right? We, we'd kind of like it as we talk to other people if they'd be a little more interested in us, talk a little bit less about themselves. We, we've got all these kinds of things that just come naturally to our minds and hearts. Not all of them are wrong, but none of them are what Paul is exhorting to us to here. He's wanting us to just walk in the door and be looking around going, what, what needs are here? Oh, is that, is that person new? Could... Could I go up to that person and say something that would encourage them? It's a completely counter-cultural, counter-intuitive, counter-our fallen human nature kind of way to think. Pursue love is what we're commanded to here. To be patient, be kind, to not envy or boast. Not to be proud or to insist on our own way. So where are we going to get this new approach? Well, the answer is Jesus, right? It has to be Jesus. Remembering what he did. Remembering that he showed up not to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. A Christian is a disciple of Jesus. We're trying to follow him. And as we are, we are helped by the example of others around us. I haven't been here very long, but I've been here long enough to see many of you who try to serve in practical ways. Uh, you come early, not a few minutes after we start, but many minutes before we start to help set up, to be ready to help people who are here. Some of you were up Late last night, well, I guess you're, you're not here now. I was going to say to preparing to teach children Bible stories. They're, they're upstairs or, or downstairs doing that even as we speak. And many of you, it's, it's not serving in some specific role in the church. You come with just that kind of a mindset, always trying to be the one to reach out, to say hello. Friend, if, if this is something you're aspiring to that you want to grow in, find those examples around you. Watch them. They're here. So love compels us to use our gifts. That's our first point. But to do what? Let's consider, secondly, to help believers grow. I'll read verse 2 through verse 19. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more 
to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit? Unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge, prophecy or teaching. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world. None is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit. I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. All right, this section is, as I said, one sustained argument. We have to take it all together. Uh, but let's make sure we understand the context first. Uh, good Bible interpreters are, are always asking, what, did it, what does it mean to them before they, we ask, what does it mean to us? So that's what we want to do. Uh, what can we observe about the Corinthian church? What was true of that context? Well, clearly they were wrongly fixated on the gift of speaking in tongues. They were wrongly fixated on it. Paul's whole point is that the gift of prophecy is better than the gift of tongues. And the reason they missed that is they were focused on the wrong thing. Now, a few definitions will be useful as we start. Uh, to prophesy means to proclaim a divine revelation, to speak God's words on his behalf. Uh, they could be prophetic in the predictive sense, like when Jeremiah prophesied that the exile would last 70 years, so it, it could be a kind of predictive prophecy, but of, often it was a, a rebuke to the people. Perhaps they were not caring for the poor, and so the prophet would come and speak to the people of Israel, rebuking them. Oftentimes, it was just revelation of truths about God and about man. It was just truth from God. But to prophesy means to speak words that God reveals. Now, I'm aware that some have made the case that New Testament prophecy is different than that, that here it can mean something more like impressions from God rather than revelation from God, and even that we shouldn't expect that those with the gift of prophecy would be infallible in what they say, uh, I find that argument utterly unpersuasive. If God, through his spirit, is going to reveal something to someone, I believe he's both able and willing to do that accurately, infallibly, clearly. Okay, so that's, that's what prophecy is. 
How about tongues? The word glossa in Greek, it means languages. To speak in tongues is to be divinely gifted to speak other languages that you haven't learned. It's what happened on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 with the Spirit empowering the apostles to speak different languages. There were all the people gathered in Jerusalem for the feast, many different mother tongues represented, and they were able to preach the gospel. It was a, a divine miracle enabling the understanding of all those gathered hearers in Jerusalem. Incidentally, some of the early missionaries to China uh, got tripped up on this, uh, read a biography about the Cambridge Seven when I was uh, first in China as a 23-year-old and uh, was sitting in language class for four hours a day uh, learning pinyin, which was not my favorite thing to do as a 23-year-old. And so I understood. Now, the, the guys, that they, some of them went to language class, some of them just prayed for the gift of tongues. And I understood those guys, okay? I, 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 I kind of wanted to go their direction, uh, but I stayed in language class. Um, all right, uh, tongues, it, it means languages. Now, sometimes as we see here in Corinth, the gift of tongues functioned not as merely a way to overcome language barriers, but also as a witness to God's power. So sometimes the tongue speaker is speaking in a language unknown to himself and to the hearer, which necessitates this gift of interpretation. It may even be, some have said that because 1 Corinthians 13.1 says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That it, it, it may also be angelic languages, but, but whatever, when you hear tongues, I just want you to, to understand it as languages. It's not gibberish. It's something with a code. It, it can be interpreted. It has meaning. Intelligible communication was always the goal. Now, let's break down Paul's argument for this section into three stages. Explanation, illustration, application. So verses 2 through 5, I want you to follow the argument. Explanation, Paul says that the one speaking in a tongue that is uninterpreted isn't speaking to men but to God because nobody understands him. I don't think this means that tongues is a private prayer language. I think Paul means he's speaking to God in the sense that only God knows what he's saying. So for the humans present, uh, these are just mysteries in the spirit, is the phrase he uses. Prophecy, on the other hand, speaks to people for what? For their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The word upbuilding or edification, we often translate it. It's the more general word. He adds encouragement and consolation to fill out a picture of the way that God's truth is supposed to help us, it's supposed to make you feel stronger, more hopeful, it's supposed to increase your faith and, in that sense, build you up. Now, in verse 4, he says that the person who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. I think meaning they gain the encouragement that God is speaking through them, that the Spirit is, is at work in, in them. But uninterpreted, that doesn't help the church the way prophecy does. So verse 5, 
He says he wants all of them to speak in tongues. I think this has to be hyperbole or at least rhetorical. He had said back in chapter 12 that not everybody has the gift of tongues. So I think Paul is saying here that he delights when as many people uh, are gifted with the Spirit as possible. The more the better is the sense of what Paul is saying here, I think. And he drives home the point. They should see prophecy as better than tongues because people can understand it, be edified, be encouraged, be consoled. So prophecy is better than tongues. It's not a complicated point. But because of how deep their infatuation was with this gift, in verses 6 through 11, he gives three illustrations. He says, if he comes speaking in uninterpreted, unknown languages, what is that like? Verse 7. He says it's like a musical instrument played by a novice. He says of a flute or a harp doesn't give distinct notes. How can we know what is played? The, the piano in my house sometimes plays Beethoven. For Elise. It's beautiful. And sometimes the three-year-old gets up at the piano and produces a cacophony of chaos. All right, that, that's the idea here. Verse 8, he mentions bugles. So bugles or some sort of horn were used by military generals to rally troops to a place in ancient times, maybe to face an approaching enemy army uh, with different number of blasts and length of blasts communicating certain things. But uh, if, again, there's no distinct notes, I was thinking as I was preparing this uh, during COVID, I got asked to come speak at a, a church missions conference, and, and at this church, uh, there was a brother who would get up before it started, and he, he had a, a shofar, which is an ancient Israeli ram's horn kind of thing, and uh, right before we started, the pastor leaned over to me and said, I'm so sorry about this. I was like, what? And he goes, I, he feels like he has to blow this thing every Sunday. He thinks it kind of encourages it. He kind of let this thing go out. Uh, wasn't so helpful. Um, in musical instruments, bugles, verse 10, a third illustration, something all of us have experienced. Foreign languages, we don't know, spoken in our presence. A language has meaning, it communicates to some, but if you don't know it, you get nothing. So verse 11, if I don't know the meaning, I'm a foreigner to them and they to me. So explanation, illustration, verse 12 to 19 is the application for the gathered church. Uh, these verses give us something of a picture of how Paul envisioned their church service going. So there is speaking in tongues with interpretation, verse 13, and or prophecy. Verse 14, there's prayer. Verse 15, there's singing of praise. Thanksgiving in 16. Or we could go back to chapter 11 and add in the Lord's Supper. So, so not a, a set order of service that we can follow, but you'll notice very similar to what we do here with the one exception of interpreted tongues and prophecy being replaced with the preaching of the Bible. Now, it would probably be useful at this point to acknowledge where I stand on the question of whether the gifts of prophecy and tongues are still active today. Uh, the idea that those have continued is called continuationism. The idea that they ceased 
with the end of the apostolic age and especially with the completion of the New Testament is called cessationism from the word to cease. And I feel like it's a challenging issue to settle in part because it asks a question that's beyond the the time period in which the New Testament documents were written. And one of the reasons that I think we should resist being dogmatic on this point, I'm persuaded that these sorts of miraculous, revelatory gifts functioned in the early church mainly because they didn't have a Bible. I mean, how do you have a church service without a Bible? How do you settle different questions that come up? What what is your standard that you use? It makes all the sense in the world to me that the Spirit was working in this way at that time. I know many would disagree with that. It just isn't surprising to me that the, the New Testament is completed and we don't see a continued emphasis on these sorts of miraculous gifts through much of church history. But personally, I don't feel the need to argue that for sure they ceased at a certain point or that God never works in this sort of way, especially on the mission field. But I also spent my time in Chinese class. So call me a nuanced cessationist. Whatever your view on this point, I want you to see that Paul's point stands either way doesn't it? In the gathered church, the gifts are to be used to target the spirit through the mind. Paul makes that point so many times, we can't miss it. Look at verse 15. I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Verse 16, if you give thanks with your spirit only, How can anyone in the position of an outsider, I think meaning the person who doesn't speak in tongues, how can anybody say amen, meaning I agree, if they don't know what you're saying? And then down in verse 19, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than a 10,000 words in a tongue. So how do we use our gifts in church to help people grow, be built up, know God better, the same way? We aim for the spirit through the mind. Paul was so clear, it's a wonder to me that we still end up with these kind of dichotomies in people's minds between, oh, there, there, there are churches out there that focus on teaching, and then there are churches out there that focus on a, a, a more emotional and spiritual worship. That's a dichotomy that's foreign to the Apostle Paul, isn't it? Uh, he understands that that. What goes into our mind in terms of theological truth is supposed to create a result in our heart. We're supposed to have light that leads to heat in the old way of describing it. Now, is it possible to be so heady, so teachy that we end up lifeless? Oh, sure it is. Just as it's possible to be so leaning towards the emotional that we never come back to sound doctrine. It's one of the reasons why I hope in the new year many of you will start coming more often to equip classes, filling your mind with truth should have a great impact on your heart and your spiritual life. Uh, This affects our Sunday gathering here in so many ways, how we approach preaching and singing and praying, 
Uh, Friends, when you pray, let truth lead to fervency in your prayer. You don't have to repeat yourself. You don't have to raise your volume. You don't have to, to, to put forward a certain emotional feeling. Let God's word guide you into the kind of praying that comes from the heart, but is based on truth. As we sing songs together, the the songs are chosen because they're a mix of rich theological truth expressed in profound ways that should raise our affections to the Lord. So ask what the meaning of the song is. Especially as, you know, we're, we're the kind of church that sings the best of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. That's, that's the kind of radio station I listened to growing up. But we, we sing songs from way back in church history and songs that were written very recently. When you're singing the old songs, you know, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. What, what does that mean again? We should ask. We should think about it. Uh, it just means that God's Spirit shows us what is true in a way that awakens our heart. So ask the meaning of the song. Let it affect your heart. Certainly as it comes to our public teaching, we should try to raise affections through the truth of what God's Word actually says. This applies not just to the ones leading. There's an application to all of us here. As you are served... Keep your eyes on the goal of growing spiritually. When you hear a sermon, your task is every bit as great as the preacher's. As he gives attention to the the speaking of the word, give your attention to the hearing of the word. The the main question you're, you're, you're wanting to talk about later over lunch is not how did the preacher do, but what is God's spirit saying to me? Through the word. Even in the driest, most boring sermon, you should be able to draw out application for yourself. Friend, do the hard work. Be a good listener. Takes intentionality, takes effort. <clears throat> All of our minds wander off the path. That happens. But but don't build the habit of just trekking through the underbrush. You know what I mean? Like when your mind starts to wonder, that's not WhatsApp time, right? That's time to tell yourself, oh, Lord, would you help me re-engage? Come back to the path. And let's take the principle one step further here. Can't you and I strive to build each other up in our interaction beyond just this gathering? Yes, we can. I think we so regularly underestimate the spiritual good that we can do each other just with a little intentionality and effort. There are three questions that you should just file away in your mind for level three and other times you meet believers. Ask people, how are you doing spiritually? Number one, how are you doing spiritually? Number two, ask them, what has God been teaching you? What has God been teaching you? And then third, how can I pray for you? That's just, just use those three questions. Just break, break them out on level three afterwards. Because the goal is that you and I can have a deepening interaction about what's going on in our lives spiritually. We'll trust that God's going to gift us to help the other person grow. Even better to follow up those conversations by saying, let's get lunch, let's get coffee. Maybe we could read scripture together and talk about it. Maybe we could get a book off the bookstall, read it together, talk about it. 
So friends, don't underestimate how much God can do through you as he gifts you to help other believers grow. So love compels us to use our gifts to help each other know God better. Let's consider third and finally, help unbelievers know God. We'll pick the text up in verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written by people of strange tongues and the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophecy... An unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Now, Paul writes this as a rebuke. This was a young church, and Paul in his letter has to rebuke a lot of worldly thinking that they were engaging in. There was jealousy, there was selfish ambition, and just a lot of selfishness, generally. So when he says here, do not be children in your thinking, he says it because they were acting like children. Uh, children are cute, but they're selfish, right? They're, they're, they're naturally selfish, focused on themselves. Their fixation on tongues seemed to be largely because it was amazing. The, the gifted tongue speaker had that wow factor that raised their prestige, their, their personal profile, their, their brand, their personal brand was elevated, and it made them desire this gift. Paul says it's immature. He wants them to be infants in evil, but in their thinking mature. And just a side note here, I feel like that phrase to be infants in evil is so helpful for us to think about. It means that, that we should not be worried about keeping up with all that is out there in secular culture. So, so young people, if you want to be cool, realize that you probably can only be cool at the cost of your character. Like if you want to be talking about whatever's hot out there right now, it's not worth it. Be infants in evil. Have you seen Game of Thrones? No. Why? Because I'll set before my eyes no vile thing. Have you seen fill in the blank? No, I haven't seen that either. Be infants in evil. Be clueless about it. This church was immature, and there was an evangelistic cost to their immaturity that I want you to see. The Old Testament quotation here is from Isaiah 28. Uh, the prophet speaks of Israel's rejection of God's message, and as a result, judgment is coming in the form of an invading Assyrian army. And that army will speak to Israel, but it's going to be in a foreign language. He says, even then, they will still not listen. In verse 22, when he says that uninterpreted tongues are a sign for unbelievers, he doesn't mean a positive sign. It's a negative sign. So in verse 23, they hear the tongues, which sound like babbling to them. Nothing's interpreted. 
They walk out saying, these guys are out of their minds, and they're still lost. On the other hand, if prophecy happens or interpreted tongues, what happens? Well, now the Word of God can function the way it's supposed to in the human heart. It can bring conviction of sin, a realization that they're accountable to God for their sin. God's Word discloses the secrets of their heart. They fall down and worship God, declaring that God is really among them. You know, one of the confusing things about church trends the the last 40 years is out of the good desire for evangelism, many churches have tried to completely change the church to make it more palatable to the interests, the tastes, the desires of the unbelieving world. Uh, The impulse to evangelism is understandable. Uh, We're struck here by the expectation that non-Christians will come and join the church service. That's what Paul is expecting. We should really, really want that to be the case here at GBC. Uh, You may be here this morning, you may be an inquirer, a seeker, You, you might be a free thinker, maybe you were just invited by a friend. You are so welcome here. Uh, We we want this to be an open service. We'd love to get to know you. We'd we'd like to try to convince you that Jesus came to make a way of salvation for you. You You may not have even realized that you need a way of salvation. But friend, the truth is that all of us as human beings are separated from a holy God because of the fact that we're not holy. And unless and until a way of salvation is made for us to cross that barrier, that's exactly what God did by sending his son Jesus to die on a Roman cross to pay the penalty for sin so that any of us, if if you, if I, if any of us will turn away from sin and trust in that payment that Jesus made, God will pardon our sin. He'll forgive us. He'll adopt us into his family. We We'd like to talk to you more about that. We'd like to hear what you think about that. We'd we'd love to get to know you. But this gathering should be open in that way. But friend, it doesn't work well, speaking to brothers and sisters in Christ now, if, if we change the service to try to bend towards the culture. I first came to a gathering like this as an unbeliever. I came because I had met some strange human beings called Christians. Uh, They talked to what I thought was their imaginary friend. Uh, I found them extremely odd. I could not figure out why they were so nice to each other all the time. But I came to that gathering because I wanted to know what Christians do. It would have been very strange if they had tried to change everything for me. I knew me. I wanted to know them. And that's exactly how it happens here. The unbeliever is converted by understanding the gospel and falling down to worship God. That's our prayer, isn't it? Friends, the application point for us here is to to have the kind of conversations out there that spark interest in people. We should be active in sharing the gospel out there taxis and buses and the workplace and gatherings at Spring Festival next week. 
but then invite them in here to see. That's exactly what I needed as an unbeliever. That's what your unbelieving friends need, to see what it is that Christians do, to understand what it is is in this book. So let's take the application and let's invite people to church. Come and hear. Come and experience. Love compels us to use our gifts to help believers and unbelievers know God. That's our desire. That's our prayer. I began by telling you about my experience in Korea, wishing that I spoke Korean. We've all had the experience of wishing that we could communicate with someone, relate to someone across a barrier. And that's why it's such a joy to look forward to the day when people from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation will sing the song of the Lamb. I don't know how that will work. What language is that going to be in? Maybe we will all have the gift of tongues. I don't know. What we do know is the song. It will be about the victory of the Lamb, the song of the Son of God, who came, who was slain, and who was raised. Until that day, beloved, pursue love. Let's pray. Father, you've been so good to us in so many ways. We pray now that you would unite our hearts in praise and in prayer that you would help us to live in such a way as to help other people know you better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.